Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I've always been fascinated by different notions of cycles in history. Whether economic cycles, the rise and fall of empires and dynasties and civilizations, or that constant oscillation between things like libertinism and puritanism or any number of other different kind of metronomes in history that seem to go back and forth in societies between different conditions and attitudes. At any given time and place in history, I think there are multiple cycles of different sorts going on. Some cycles are peculiar to certain countries, cultures, and so on, and others, I think, are universal. And some cycles go through their cycle more quickly, and others are longer, slower cycles. And I think there's all this happening at once, and it's very complex. People in the modern Western mindset have a tendency to think about time and human history in more purely linear terms, and to think that trends like objects in space that have experienced a force operating upon them in conditions of inertia, that social trends and things like that tend to just keep going in the same direction for very, very long periods of time or even indefinitely. Think of the modern notion of progress, right? Or people who are into linear time glom onto Garden of Eden-style myths about things such as in the beginning, everything was good, and then there was some sort of fall, and now we're on the trajectory to eventually redeem ourselves, or something like that. If there's been peace for a while, people tend to think the peace will last forever. If there's been prosperity for a while, people tend to think the prosperity will last forever. And the same thing is true of negative trends. If crime is on the increase at the moment, people tend to think that it'll always increase, and eventually it'll just be Lord of the Flies or something. But trends don't go on indefinitely, and instead, when you zoom the camera lens out, you tend to see more kind of waves, sort of oscillations. Or if you think about them over the course of time, and as repeating idioms, you might think of them as cycles. Because linear time doesn't really accurately show you what's really going on in a human society and why. Or at the very least, it has severe limitations. When you closely study history, especially things like social history and cultural history, what you find is that analogous trends seem to come and go, wax and wane, sometimes with an almost clockwork sort of regularity. Or as Mark Twain famously said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme.
CJ here, the one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, anarchy's smooth operator, back after an extended absence, which was for a combination of good and bad reasons, but I'm very happy to be back with you. It has been just driving me insane not getting out a new DHP episode for quite a while. So I'm happy to be back, and I thank you all for your patience. Before I launch into the episode, I do have some excellent individuals to thank for stepping up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And so big thank yous go out to Ben, Carl, Vignesh, Jimmy, Jacob, and Patrick. Thanks very much to all of you. And also thanks to a mystery benefactor for ordering me from my Amazon wishlist, Last Exit to Utopia, The Survival of Socialism in a Post-Soviet Era by Jean-Francois Ravel. So yeah, back after perhaps the longest absence since I started this podcast almost three years ago. And of course, a big part of that was my Ireland trip. I was out of the country, out of my home country, the USA, traveling to and through Ireland for a total of 11 days, counting all the travel days. So nearly two weeks leading a study abroad trip along with one of my colleagues from my college to go visit Ireland, as we did around the same time last year. And this trip was even better. We learned some things from last time, made some tweaks to the itinerary and so on. And it was really a great trip. But of course, it made it impossible for me to do things like record and publish new DHP episodes. And I was trying to get out this episode you're listening to right now. I was trying to get it recorded and published before I left, and I just couldn't do it. I had too much um, other stuff going on, and this ended up being a bigger episode than I thought it would be. But it was a great trip, and then we got back right as summer school was starting. Literally the day we were flying back, summer school was actually starting. And so as soon as I got back, I had to jump right into work, which is fine. You know, it's what we did last year as well. It's just the way the timing works out for this trip. But unfortunately, within just a couple days of getting back, I got sick. I got nailed with, I hesitate to call it a cold, because to me, a cold is kind of a minor inconvenience. You feel a little crummy, you're a little bit stuffed up, but it's not a huge deal. Well, this was, you know how some colds are like that? They're just kind of a little bit annoying. And then there's the colds that just knock you on your ass and really, you know, take a lot out of you. And it's not the flu or anything like that. It's but still kind of you can identify it as a, as a cold virus sort of situation. And um, it's just one that is just nuclear, as they say. And that's what this was. It was one of those sorts of colds that really took a lot out of me and really fucked me up badly for a number of days. And you may still hear it in my voice. I'm not sure, but at least I can talk. I would have been unable to record this episode. I probably could have recorded it close to a week ago, but I was too too sick to talk that much. Bad sore throat, cough, stuffed up, just horrible. But anyway, I'm finally getting over that, it seems so. Here I am back on the job. One more thing I want to mention before I launch into this episode, and that is I want to share with you a plug for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest in Michigan, which I attended and spoke at last year. This year, it's looking like I'm not going to be able to go to it. They put it in June. Last year, it was in August, and it's just 
not looking like it's in the cards for me being able to go, but I had a really great time and I hope that if you're able to make it, you'll consider going because I really enjoyed it. So here's our good friend Lou from Freedom Fiends with a word about the fest this year. The Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition is proud to present the 5th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. It will be held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, starting Thursday, June 22nd, and going through Monday, June 26th. That's right, Liberty Fest is getting longer and stronger. There will be presentations, discussions, bacon duels, and outdoor activities in an environment that is both family and grown-up friendly. There will be special appearances by Jeffrey Tucker, Dana Martin, and a few of the Freedom Fiends. If you have only talked about what a free society would look like, this is your chance to live it and see it with your own eyes. Now round up your friends and family and get them registered today at mplfest.org. And there is a discount for paying with Bitcoin. That's mplfest.org. Dogs welcome. Longer leashes recommended. All right. So again, I urge you, if you can make it to consider going, it's a lot of fun. And if you go, be sure to sample Lou's cooking. He's usually there um, vending various meals during the fest, and he is a top-notch outdoor chef. I've been really impressed when I've sampled his food at Pork Fest and at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. All right, so anyway, let's launch into the meat of our episode on cyclical history and generations. And a lot of this episode is going to be a review and discussion of the pretty famous book, The Fourth Turning, What the Cycles of History Tell Us About America's Next Rendezvous with History, which was written by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And this is one of those books that I'd heard about, kind of known roughly what it was about for a long, long time, familiar with the basic concept of it, but only in recent months did I actually get a copy of it and read it. But it was very interesting. I was impressed by it. It was better than I thought it would be. And while I don't think they get everything right and I don't think that they, that their model perfectly explains everything and, you know, I have some criticisms like that. Overall, I think it's worth reading if it's anything you're even remotely interested in. So I want to talk just a little bit about conceptions of cyclical time because as I indicated in the intro a little bit, pre-modern man was more likely to think in terms of cyclical time than in terms of linear time, with the exception of a few of the um, ancient monotheistic religions. Those tend to give you linear time. So think about Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Islam, etc. They tend to give you a version that's much more like existence, history, whatever. It started over here, and it's moving in this direction towards some sort of an endpoint, right? You go from from Genesis to Revelation, so to speak. You go from the creation to the end of times, or, you know, whatever the particular variation is. But ancient man, especially ancient kind of pagan polytheistic man, much more likely to think in terms of cycles of time and history and so on. And I just want to mention a few examples of this you'll find if you study world history. One is samsara, which is a concept that can be found in many Eastern religions, perhaps most prominently in Hinduism, but in other related religions as well. It's a very common concept to find in religions that arose on the Indian subcontinent. It's the concept that everything in existence kind of endlessly cycles through. And this includes the concept that while 
bodies are born and live and then die. The soul is eternal and it gets recycled. This is, of course, the basis of reincarnation. And this is often tied to some form of karma, wherein one station in one's next life is ultimately the result of kind of a cumulative tally of good versus bad karma, which is racked up by good versus bad deeds and so on from previous lives. And this concept is very ancient. It goes back thousands of years, at least as far back as the Vedic age in India. The concept of samsara is an important part of the major religions that evolved in ancient India, including Brahmanism, which is kind of like the earliest version of Hinduism. And of course, Hinduism itself, as well as Jainism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. And each of these religions has a different take in terms of the details on samsara, but all of them embrace some variation of cyclical time and related notions such as reincarnation. Also, while I'm not an expert on any of these religions, I know a little bit about them from teaching world history and so on. And my understanding is that all of these religions offer as a goal to their followers the possibility of escaping this endless cycle by reaching sort of a sufficient stage of enlightenment and spiritual development and whatnot in which one gets to finally kind of transcend or jump out of the endless cycle. And this concept is known as Brahman and Hinduism and Nirvana and Buddhism, for example. Again, the exact details of this will vary from one religious tradition to another, but the big picture is pretty clearly parallel and analogous. One gets out of endless recycling by becoming so enlightened that you become one with the ultimate reality of existence, and thus you kind of transcend the normal cycles of time, that sort of thing. Another pretty well-known example of cyclical history that I'm fairly familiar with, and this one in a more secular realm, comes from ancient China and the concept of the dynastic cycle. And apparently some Chinese scholars way, way back when noticed certain patterns in terms of the rise and fall of different dynasties. So unlike the modern Western conception of linear history, the Chinese were more likely to see things in terms of a cyclical rising and falling of kingdoms and empires and dynasties. So the idea of the dynastic cycle is something along these lines. You would have the first rulers who would establish a dynasty. They would do so through merit. They would be tough, but competent military commanders and tough but fair rulers who seize power, expand their territory, unify much or all of China. And these tough but competent early generations of a dynasty, they would then have what the Chinese would call the mandate of heaven on their side, which sort of means like the divine right to rule, but the flip side of it is you only are said to enjoy the mandate of heaven when you are ruling well. In other words, you deserve to be obeyed, but only if you are actually ruling well. And if you are ruling well, people deserve, people are supposed to, they're obligated to obey you. But of course, the flip side is if you're not, then they're not. Now, the heirs of the early generations would eventually over time become greedy, corrupt, decadent, and so on. And the powerful would increasingly avoid taxes. The poor would increasingly become overtaxed and the economy would be disrupted. And usually there would be other things accompanying this decline. There might be natural disasters, uh, invasion from outside, sickness, whatever. And ultimately, things would start to fall apart. Some people who were able to might even leave that particular kingdom. The state 
its declining would become too weak to defend itself from external threats or to keep the peace internally from rebellion and that sort of thing. And so at this point, the ruler would be considered to no longer have the mandate of heaven, and it would be considered morally okay to not obey them anymore. And eventually a new dynasty would either rise up from within or perhaps invade from outside, and it would establish its dominance, and the cycle would begin again. The ancient Greeks and Romans, specifically the pre-Christian Greeks and Romans, also tended to see history and the rise and fall of different states and so on in terms of cycles. And in fact, it was the Romans who actually got the idea ultimately from the Etruscans, an earlier civilization in Italy, that developed the idea of the saculum, which is an important concept in Strauss and Howe's theory about generations. So more on that in a minute. But again, we tend to think, especially in the modern Western world, more in terms of linear time. We think about, oh, things start over here, and then they go in a particular direction until they get to an end point. And a lot of this is the legacy of Abrahamic religions, um, Zoroastrianism as well, as I understand it, endorsed linear time. And even amongst the more secular elements of modern Western society, this ultimate concept of time still is dominant. And you can see it in terms of things like the concept of progress, right? The concept of, well, because in our lifetimes and even in, you know, recent centuries, progress has been pretty dramatic and generally upward in terms of technology and whatnot, that means it must ultimately continue on that same curve which it's always a dangerous thing to assume that current trends will just continue indefinitely. But anyway, a few more recent versions of cyclical time, there have been some thinkers and writers and so on who've come up with either explicitly or implicitly some version of cyclical history. And one is Oswald Spengler, who was an early 20th century German intellectual, best known for his book, The Decline of the West, in which he talks about civilizations going through an organic lifestyle in which they are born, grow, decay, and die. And I'm not going to get into that too much here. There's pluses and minuses to this theory. There's some problems in it, but it does reveal some interesting insights. More recently, the British historian Arnold Toynbee, in his book A Study of History, kind of outlined cycles in European history that bear some resemblance in some ways to Strauss and Howe's generational theory. And among other things, Toynbee realized that there were on average approximately 95 years between the full-on general wars, the total wars between great powers in Europe, though, of course, there were smaller conflicts in between. And Toynbee thought that part of the reason why the really major wars in Europe only occurred about once a century was because what had to happen was that the last generation to experience total war had to die off so that no one was around who could still remember how horrible it was and people would again become more likely to bring on a total war. This is an insight, by the way, that Strauss and Howe actually cite as being somewhat influential on their perception of things. I'll also mention the theory of Joseph Tainter, which is a theory of societal collapse. I've mentioned on this show a few times the idea that societies invest in complexity to solve their problems. And for a while, this works. But eventually, you get to a point where further investments in complexity reach a point of kind of diminishing and then negative returns. And this brings about a societal collapse. 
So anyway, these are just some more recent theories and models of history and societies that have a cyclical element to them. So on to the heart of this episode, which is Strauss and Howe and their theory. William Strauss was born in 1947 and died of cancer in 2007, and Neil Howe was born in 1951 and is, as of this recording, still around, still writing, still giving presentations, and so on. In 1991, they published their first book on this topic, which was entitled simply Generations. And then in 1997, they published what would become their most well-known work, The Fourth Turning, which expanded upon their generational theory of Anglo-American history that they started to sketch out in Generations. In their work, Strauss and Howe tried to bring back a more cyclical view of time and history, rejecting both linear history, the one in which trends, whether positive or negative, just kind of continue in the same direction, which I'd have to say I think is kind of the popular thought on history amongst just average random people, and also rejecting chaotic history, which is where things just kind of happen and it's extremely complex and there's really no pattern to it whatsoever and there's nothing you can really kind of glean from it in terms of patterns and rhythms. They reject both of those and try to bring back cyclical time. By the way, the chaotic time, I think, is one that's maybe more, in some ways at least, more amenable to modern mainstream academia, where there's a tendency amongst a lot of people in academia who deal with history, to just treat it as this thing that should just purely be studied for its own sake as like a curiosity without any real connection to the present or any real sense of, hey, what lessons can we learn from this or whatever, which obviously is not how I see it. And I'm much more amenable to the cyclical view myself than I am to either the linear or chaotic. So obviously I'm, I'm a bit sympathetic to Strauss and how, at least in that regard, right off the bat. Strauss and Howe argue that Americans so often are wrong in their predictions of the future because they have a tendency to think in linear time, and so they'll assume that any present trend will continue. So if crime is right now and has been in recent years on the on the rise, they'll think, oh, it's just going to keep getting worse until we're eventually eating each other and it's clockwork or orange or something. Or if things are going well and it's prosperous and there's crime falling and so on, they'll just assume, oh, it's a few years will be in utopia. And it never quite works out either way. And the reason, according to Strauss and Howe, that these trends tend not to continue indefinitely for more than a decade or two is that within a couple decades, it's a different generation who are in the same age bracket you might be looking at. And so subsequent generations, they argue, won't behave the same way in the same stages of their lives as prior generations. So, for example, you can look at the trends in society that you could see in America in the 50s versus the trends in society you could see in America in the 70s. And it's almost night and day in terms of difference. Optimism versus pessimism, a sense of things getting better versus a sense of things declining, falling crime versus rising crime, etc., Instead, Strauss and Howe argue, generations tend to react against things done by previous generations, trends brought about by previous generations. And as the different generations react against each other, they argue this creates an identifiable cycle of four generational archetypes and also four turnings or phases of history. 
And an important part of a generation's identity, they say, is what stage of life you're at when some important event happens. So, for example, if a major war starts, it's going to shape and mold your views and your attitudes towards the world very differently if you're a young adult, possibly of military age, versus if that happens when you're a small child, or if that happens when you're a middle-aged person or an elderly person or what have you. So, I find this kind of compelling because you think about it, if Pearl Harbor happens and you're five, you're going to have a very different perception of it. It's going to affect your mindset very differently than if Pearl Harbor happens and you're 20 or if Pearl Harbor happens and you're 70. Strauss and Howe take this concept of the saculum as one of the basis of their model. They point out it's a term that goes back to the ancient Etruscans and it comes to us largely via the Romans who adopted a lot of elements of Etruscan culture, and so on. It's central to their theory, and it's defined as basically a long human life. In other words, if you die of natural causes, but you live a long life. And that, they argue, hasn't really changed much in thousands of years. A long human life is approximately 80 years, occasionally as much as 100, give or take. And they point out that many of the long cycles in history seem to unfold over roughly that course of time, roughly 80 to 100 years for a trend to repeat itself, you know, for the next total war to happen or for some big economic cycle to come through. Strauss and Howe identify four phases of life, childhood, young adulthood, middle age, and elderhood. And each of these lasts approximately 20 years, give or take a few. So, you know, childhood lasts until about the age of 20. Young adulthood is your 20s and 30s. Midlife is your 40s and 50s. And elderhood is after that. Because they look at generations through the prism of these four phases of life, each of which lasts approximately 20 years, Strauss and Howe define generations as lasting approximately 20 years as well, give or take. Now, other people who've written on and studied generations, they'll vary from one to two decades in saying exactly how long is a generation. I think Strauss and Howe, on the one hand, they make a compelling case for 20 years being a generation because 20 years is a stage of life. On the other hand, I think you could also make a counter-argument that, well, by grouping a people born over the span of 20 years together in one generation, that might limit how many accurate claims you could say as far as defining characteristics of that generation. So, for example, if one says that, I don't know, Generation X spans from like 1962 to 1982 or something like that, then you could potentially take it apart by saying, well, look, someone who was born in 62 and someone who was born in 82 are pretty different in terms of what they experienced growing up and all that. And you could argue that someone born in 62 might have more in common in a lot of ways with someone born in 58 than they do with someone born in 82. And that reveals something which is, you know, to a point, the whole concept of generations is a man-made construct. It has its limitations. It has the same limitations as any other category. And so while it certainly has some uses in identifying commonalities and traits and trends and things, I think it is important from time to time to, rem to remind yourself that a generation doesn't exist independently as a thing. It's a human category. 
And so to some extent, you could argue that it's always going to be arbitrary. On the other hand, like I said a minute ago, I think they, they make a compelling case for a generation being about 20 years based on the concept of phases of life. And I can see where they're coming from. It has some validity to it again just keeping in mind the limitations. But if they would have made it 10, then you could criticize that for having limitations. So to some extent, this is somewhat arbitrary. Anyway, Strauss and Howe, they speak of generations as largely being defined by what phase of life that you're at when a great event of history occurs. So like I said before, when Pearl Harbor happened, were you a child? If you were, then you were part of what they call the silent generation. Were you a young adult of approximately military age? If you were, then you'd be what they call the GI generation. Were you in midlife? Maybe too old to be a rank-and-file soldier, but maybe young enough to be, I don't know, a military officer or something like that. Well, if that's the case, then you were probably a member of what they call the lost generation. Or were you an elder? Were you someone who was too old even to be a field officer or something like that? but maybe of the age of a lot of the political leaders and the highest up-level generals, like George Marshall, for example. Well, if you were of that generation, you'd be what Strauss and Howe call the missionary generation. So again, depending on where you are in your life, when something like Pearl Harbor, for example, happens, Strauss and Howe argue where you are in your life affects how you perceive the event and how the event shapes you, how it shapes your attitudes and personality and perception of the world. If you lived through the stock market crash of 1929, where were you in your life? It probably affected you differently in terms of your psychology, depending on where you were, in terms of age bracket phase of life. Strauss and Howe write this about the phases of life, quote, The length of a generation in birth years should approximate the length of a phase of life in years of age. Before the early 19th century, American generations should average about 25 years in length. Since then, they should average about 21 years. Necessarily, these lengths can vary somewhat for each generation, depending on the vagaries of history and the precise timing of great events. To apply these lengths to real birth years, you have to locate an underlying generational persona. Every generation has one. It's a distinctly human and variable creation, with attitudes about family life, gender roles, institutions, politics, religion, lifestyle, and the future. Like any social category, race, class, or nationality, a generation can allow plenty of individual exceptions and be fuzzy at the edges. But unlike most other categories, it possesses its own personal biography. There is no fixed formula for identifying the persona of a real-life generation. But it helps to look for three attributes. First, a generation's common location in history. Second, its common beliefs and behavior. And third, its perceived membership in a common generation, end quote. And so the way they define generation, to some extent, has some similarities to the way some of the more nuanced analysts of social class and socioeconomic class study social class, where it's not when you look at social class, you know, upper class, lower class, working class, middle class, these sorts of categories. It's not enough to just simply go based on what your income is, because there are some people who might be considered blue collar who actually have higher income than some people who would be considered, you know, upper middle class. And part of it, the more nuanced analysts of social class will tell you, has to do with how a person perceives himself. Do they perceive themselves as part of this class or that class? And that's a huge part of it. And so Strauss and Howe are making a similar claim for generations. 
that it's not just a matter of chronology, and it's not just a matter of sharing some common attitudes and so on. It's also you can kind of perceive yourself to be part of this group. And I think you realize this the older you get, and the more you interact with people of both older and younger generations, the more you can kind of understand like, oh, somebody of, you know, two generations older, or a generation or two younger than me, they just don't see the world the same way I do. And it's not a matter of either of us being smarter or dumber or anything like that. It's just a matter of your entire worldview is highly subjective and is shaped by a lot of this sort of thing. So those are the four phases of life that each generation works its way through, assuming you don't die young. And then Strauss and Howe identify four generational archetypes. They have an interesting kind of Jungian concept of generational archetypes, and they provide some interesting literary and mythological metaphors to illustrate this. According to Strauss and Howe, there are four generational archetypes, and they repeat themselves most of the time, with a few aberrations here and there. They tend to repeat themselves in the same order, as each generation responds to the circumstances in which it is born and raised. So the first generational archetype is the prophet. The prophet is born during what's known as a high, which is an age where things are pretty good in the aftermath of getting through a crisis, and I'll talk more about these ages or turnings in a moment. Strauss and Howe say this of a prophet generation, that it, quote, grows up as increasingly indulged post-crisis children, comes of age as the narcissistic young crusaders of an awakening, cultivates principle as moralistic midlifers, and emerges as wise elders guiding the next crisis, end quote. So a prophet generation is born and raised during a time when things seem to be going pretty good, and as a result, you could argue if you wanted to be negative about it, spoiled. And because of the secure, prosperous circumstances in which they're raised, they can kind of take the outer world for granted, and then they start to notice that the inner world of the individual, the kind of spiritual side of things, however you want to put it, is neglected. And so they then rebel and come up with some sort of a spiritual awakening or something like that, some sort of spiritually tinged counterculture. The next generational archetype is the nomad. The nomad is a generation born during an awakening, which the awakening is what a prophet generation does once it enters young adulthood, typically, where they're kind of rebelling against the older generation and bringing about some sort of spiritual awakening. So a nomad generation is born and raised during that process, and they tend to be neglected by self-absorbed parents who are themselves preoccupied with the awakening. Nomad generations, according to Strauss and Howe, tend to get shafted both early in life as neglected children and then again late in life as their elderhood tends to coincide with a time period known as a high, which, again, more on that in a minute, and during a high, society, according to Strauss and Howe, tends to shift more resources from the old to the young. Strauss and Howe say that a nomad generation, quote, grows up as underprotected children during an awakening, comes of age as the alienated young adults of a post-awakening world, mellows into pragmatic midlife leaders during a crisis, and ages into tough post-crisis elders, end quote. The third generational archetype they talk about is the hero. The hero is born and raised during an unraveling, and again, I'm going to define these different eras or turnings more in a second. 
This sort of generation, according to Strauss and Howe, quote, grows up as increasingly protected post-awakening children, comes of age as the heroic young team workers of a crisis, demonstrates hubris as energetic midlifers, and emerges as powerful elders attacked by the next awakening, end quote. So again, they're known for being the high-achieving grunts of dealing with a crisis, and then for later in life becoming somewhat hubristic, and in part based on they did accomplish something difficult or whatever as young adults, but then they can oftentimes go too far. So, for example, call to mind, it was the World War II generation who, once they were running America's political system, got America into the Vietnam War and really thought they could accomplish more in Vietnam than they really could. It's also that generation who thought they could simultaneously fight the Vietnam War, fly to the moon, and have giant great society welfare programs domestically all at the same time with no sense of like the limits that the generation before them understood, you know, back in the 50s. That, yeah, you can spend more on this or more on that, but you can't spend a ton on everything simultaneously and expect it to work out well in the end. But anyway, the last generational archetype Strauss and Howe define is the artist generation. And these are born and raised during a crisis. And because they're born and raised during a crisis, Strauss and Howe argue, they tend to be overprotected as children, they tend to be kind of sheltered, and they're raised above all else to be somewhat submissive and get along well with others and that sort of thing. And they say of this type of generation that it, quote, grows up as overprotected children during a crisis, comes of age as the sensitive young adults of a post-crisis world, breaks free as indecisive midlife leaders during an awakening, and ages into empathetic post-awakening elders, end quote. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Strauss and Howe are not saying that any of these archetypes are better or worse than the others. They make this very clear. Instead, they argue that they're all necessary. Quote, these four archetypes have lent balance and self-correction to the continuing story of America. Were our ancestral legacy to have had too much or too little of any of the four, we would today be poorer for it, end quote. Again, Strauss and Howe say that these four archetypes follow each other in the same order again and again. Prophet, nomad, hero, artist. Prophet, nomad, hero, artist. And they only identify one exception in modern American history, and that is they argue that the Civil War crisis era, for reasons I might mention a little bit later, they argue it did not create a hero archetype generation, and they identify that as sort of an aberration. Now, these four archetypes, they succeed each other through four ages or turnings or eras. And again, these last about 20 years, give or take, about the same time period as a phase of life. And the generational archetypes will be in the same sort of constellation of where they are in their own individual lives in terms of their phase of life each time one of these eras happens. So we start off with a high. The high is in the aftermath of the last crisis. It might be considered the spring of the cycle. The previous prophet generation is dying off, is mostly gone because of age, and the nomad generation from before are entering elderhood. The hero generation, who were the grunts of getting through the previous crisis, they're entering midlife. The artist generation are entering young adulthood, and the next generation of prophets are being born. 
During a high, individualism is weak, institutions are strong. The children are being protected and even overindulged, and as a result are, growing, are going to grow up to be profit archetype. This is the peak of centripetal forces in society. There's prosperity and optimism, but there's also conformity and a lack of attention paid to kind of inner life. Following a high, Strauss and Howe say there is an awakening. This might be considered the summer of the cycle. The previous nomad generation is dying off. The hero generation of the previous crisis are entering elderhood. The artist generation entering midlife. And the prophets are entering young adulthood. At the same time, the next nomad generation is being born. Some examples from American history that Strauss and Howe identify as awakening eras would be the Puritan awakening of the 1630s and 40s, the so-called Great Awakening of the 1740s and 50s, the Second Great Awakening of the 1830s and 40s, and the Third Great Awakening of the 1880s and 90s. And this I thought was interesting, by the way, because I've always noticed, like, yeah, about every, you know, 80 to 90 years or so, there's one of these spiritual awakenings in American history, and they have a theory that explains why. And then they identify as the next great awakening, actually what they call the New Age or Consciousness Awakening of the 1960s and 70s. So it looks a little bit different because it's not as much like an evangelical Protestant awakening. But nonetheless, Strauss and Howe say it's just the next great awakening era, the 60s and 70s. During an awakening, the rising generation of prophet archetype people attack the existing order and create a spiritual awakening. They turn the focus of people more towards inner life. They place more emphasis on morality as they perceive it, and they point out the immoralities, the inequalities, the problems, etc. of the existing paradigm. And so they start to challenge the values and so on of the existing order. During an awakening, children are underprotected and even neglected, and this is why they grow up to be nomads. And this new values regime begins to emerge and battle with the existing ones. So the young prophets, their values are clashing very hard with the elder heroes. And this is the generational wars, right, of the 60s and 70s between the baby boomers and the World War II generation with the silent generation kind of in the middle. Following an awakening, you have an unraveling, which is sort of the autumn of the cycle. The last generation of heroes from the previous crisis are dying off. The artist generation is becoming the elders. The prophets are entering midlife. The nomads are entering young adulthood. And the next hero generation is being born. During an unraveling, institutions are weak and distrusted while individualism is strong. In other words, the centrifugal forces of society are accelerating. Following an unraveling, you have a crisis. This is the winter of the cycle. The prior artist generation is dying off. The prophets are becoming the elders. The nomads are becoming the midlifers. Heroes are in young adulthood. And the next generation of artists is being born. During the crisis, the old institutional structure, which had decayed during the unraveling, ultimately collapses and is replaced by a new institutional structure. Centrifugal forces peak and then reverse, and things begin to go in a more centripetal direction. During the crisis, children are overprotective as parents, overprotected, I should say, as parents try to shield them from the worst of what's going on. 
And a lot of things change in these cycles, and I can't get into all of it. I mean, this is a big, long, dense book, but for example, gender roles change during these cycles. So gender roles between male and female are the most polarized during a high. In other words, men are the manliest, women are the womenliest during a high. During an awakening, feminism basically of one form or another emerges, and the gap between gender roles begins to narrow, and it reaches its narrowest, they say, during an unraveling, and then begins to revert back to the more different gender spheres, the more traditional way, during a crisis. (coughs) They say that this cycle also tends to affect immigration. So they say immigration tends to go up during an awakening, to peak during an unraveling, and to fall during a crisis, and then to be low during a high. They say this affects crime rates as well, that crime rates will tend to rise during an awakening, peak during an unraveling, and then begin to fall during a crisis, and be low during a high. Now, Strauss and Howe trace this pattern of turnings and the succession of generational archetypes all the way back to 15th century England, and from there through the colonial period and up to the present. But for our purposes in this episode, I'm mostly going to just talk about the last couple of centuries, especially the last century. Again, I mentioned this before, they argue that the Civil War was the only cycle that they looked at that didn't fit their standard model. And they argue that what happened with that one was the unraveling and the crisis happened more quickly than normal, and that basically... The Civil War didn't produce a hero archetype generation, and as a result of of this and the things, basically the unraveling and crisis happening too quickly, the crisis ended up with a less positive outcome than other crises in American history with a more kind of ambiguous and less triumphal sort of an outcome. Now, it's important to keep in mind that just as Strauss and Howe argue that none of the generational archetypes is better or worse than the other, the same thing is true of their attitude towards the different turnings. They argue that none of the turnings are intrinsically better or worse, good or bad, but rather that they're all necessary, just as the cycles of the seasons and other cycles in the natural world are all necessary. Winter isn't bad, it's just necessary. It's just part of the cycle, part of the rhythm. By the way, you probably are thinking, or you may be thinking anyway, um, given my appreciation of Taoism, how much this sort of view on things, that there's these cycles, these rhythms, and none of them are necessarily good or bad. They're just part of the process, part of the balance, that this clearly ties into Taoism, and I'd agree with you very much. Now, I just want to walk you through kind of the bird's eye overview of the turnings as identified by Strauss and Howe since the American Revolution. So perhaps not surprisingly, Strauss and Howe identify the American Revolution, which they include in this whole era, up through the writing of the Constitution and the beginning of Washington's presidency. They identify this as a fourth turning or crisis era. So the prophet generation was that of Ben Franklin and Samuel Adams, you know, the older guys who were involved with the revolution. And the nomad generation was that of people like George Washington and John Adams, whereas the slightly younger hero generation was that of people like Jefferson and Madison. And the artist generation being born and raised during this era was the generation of Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. Then you have the era of good feelings, which... Strauss and Howe identify as a first turning or a high, and they date this era as being roughly 1794 to 1822. This is followed by what they call the Transcendental Awakening, which is more commonly called by historians the Second Great Awakening, and they say this is a second turning, this is an awakening, and they date this as being roughly 1822 to 1844. 
They then identify a third turning or an unraveling as being the era of the Mexican War and the sectional conflict between North and South, basically the lead up to the Civil War, which they date 1844 to 1860. Notice it's a bit short, right? It's only 16 years. Then they identify the Civil War of 1861 to 65 as a fourth turning or crisis. So notice that while the third turning in this one was a little bit shorter, the fourth turning was a lot shorter. And again, Strauss and Howe say this is an anomaly and that basically the Civil War came too early and that the third and fourth turnings, especially the fourth, were kind of truncated. And again, this is part of why the Civil War in their argument is more problematic in its outcome and aftermath than other fourth turnings that they talk about. Well, after the Civil War, you have Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, which they date to 1865 to 86 and call a first turning, a high. Then you have the Third Great Awakening of 1886 to 1908, which they call a second turning or awakening. This is followed by a third turning or unraveling, which they call World War I and Prohibition. 1908 to 1929 is how they date that. And then the fourth turning or crisis era that follows after that, they identify as the Great Depression and World War II, so 1929 to 46. This is followed by a new first turning, the post-World War II high of 46 to 64, which is followed by a new second turning or awakening, that of the Consciousness Revolution, which they date from 64 to 1984. And then they term the third turning or unraveling that follows that as the culture wars, which they date from 1984 to 2005 question mark. Now, remember, this book was written in the 1990s, so they were just guessing when the third turning would end and be followed by crisis 2005. Now, you might be wondering, did 9-11 usher in the fourth turning? Are we currently in the fourth turning? Well, my understanding from listening to some recent things interviews and presentations by Neil Howe is that his view, at least, is that 9-11 actually didn't start the fourth turning, but that the financial meltdown of 2008 did. So that's his take. But in the fourth turning, which, remember, was written about 20 years ago, Strauss and Howe say that whatever millennial crisis, which is how they talk about it, whenever the millennial crisis occurs, It'll happen when the baby boom generation are entering elderhood, when the 13ers, which is their term for Gen X, are entering midlife, when millennials are entering adulthood, and when the next artist generation is being born. In other words, right about now. So again, I've heard Neil Howe say the financial meltdown of 2008 was the catalyst that ushered in the fourth turning that we're currently in the early stages of. In much the same way that they say the stock market crash of 1929 really began the fourth turning, it didn't start with the outbreak of World War II. I want to briefly walk you through, again, kind of a bird's eye view of the post-Civil War generations in American history as defined by Strauss and Howe. So first you have what they term the missionary generation, which is of the prophet archetype, and they say was born 1860 to 1882. These people tended to be, they say, big moral reformers, crusaders, do-gooders. They're into muckraking journalism and progressive reform. They're the generation that gave us alcohol prohibition, immigration restriction, and crackdowns on all sorts of vices, including a lot of America's earliest anti-drug laws. It's also the generation that, once in power, gave us the New Deal and America's involvement in two world wars. A few historically famous examples of this generation would include Franklin Roosevelt, William Jennings Bryan, Herbert Hoover, and Douglas MacArthur. 
would also include Smedley Butler, by the way. The generation after the missionary generation is the lost generation. These are of the nomad archetype and were born between 1883 and 1900. This is the generation that came of age right around the time of World War I. And famous examples include F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower. They tended to be more pragmatic and less of the moral crusader types than the missionary generation that came just before them. After the lost generation, you have the GI generation. This is the one that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. These Strauss and House say are of the hero archetype, and they date them as being born between 1901 and 1924. These were the people who came of age during the Great Depression, which Strauss and Howe characterize as the first half of America's last crisis era before the current one. They were, as a generation, energetic and optimistic, but also quite conformist. They were the go-getter, team-player people who were really the rank and file of the New Deal's make-work programs like the CCC, and they also voted for FDR more overwhelmingly than any other generation alive at the time. Then, of course, most famously, they also provided the rank and file of the U.S. military during World War II. As they got older and came to dominate American politics for decades, they were characterized by hubris and by a sense of entitlement. Because of their accomplishments early in life, they thought that they could, via the U.S. government, do just about anything. So again, yeah, they did land a man on the moon, but they also nearly bankrupted the country by doing not only that, but simultaneously the Great Society and the war in Vietnam. Interestingly, a little side note, Strauss and Howe point out that the only two votes in Congress against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in 1964 came from two elderly senators of the outgoing lost generation, Senators Morse and Gruning. Anyway, in terms of entitlement, in their elderly years, the GI generation pushed for and got vast increases in benefits for the elderly, often at the expense of programs designed to help the young. So Strauss and Howe contrast them to the nomad lost generation that came just before them as follows, quote, Where lost elders once preferred to attack public spending and leave revenues alone, GI seniors wanted the opposite. Where lost elders had been overwhelmingly Republican, most GI elders were reliably Democratic. Fueled by the new senior lobby, the last GI Congresses spent the entire post-Vietnam fiscal peace dividend on their own peers. By the late 1970s, transfer payments from younger generations to GIs towered by a 10 to 1 ratio over what remained of Great Society poverty programs. Now, what seniors received from the U.S. government rose 15 times faster than average wages. Where lost elders had been the poorest generation of the high, GI seniors became the least poor generation of the awakening. For the lost, the word retirement had connoted something you did with a worn-out horse. For GIs, it came to mean a two-decade-long leisure world in relatively good health. End quote. Famous historical examples of this generation include literally every president from JFK through George Bush I, as well as too many people to list. I'll just mention a few kind of random prominent examples. John Wayne, Clark Gable, Walter Cronkite, Rita Hayworth, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Stan Lee, Walt Disney, David Rockefeller, Howard Hughes, just to name a few. Then you have the silent generation, which again, Strauss and Howe say are of the artist archetype, and they date as being born between 1925 and 1942. 
This generation was just young enough to have mostly missed combat in World War II, although many of them did later serve in the Korean War. They came of age just as America was entering its post-World War II high, and as a result, Strauss and Howe say, these were the most upwardly mobile generation in U.S. history. Strauss and Howe say that in part because of where they fit in between the GI generation and the baby boomers, the silent generation produced a disproportionate number of musicians, songwriters, therapists, and comedians. Many of the silent generation were really pretty square during their young adulthood, although many also joined in with some of the counterculture and sexual revolution beginning in the 1960s. In the show notes for this episode, I'll link to a video clip of George Carlin, who was of the silent generation, talking about his own experience of being in between the boomers and the GIs, and ultimately, in his case at least, siding more with the boomers and their cultural rebellion and counterculture than with the older, more square GIs. But of course, there were other members of George Carlin's generation who went the opposite way. The silent generation produced a lot of major civil rights leaders, as well as a lot of the most influential founders of modern American musical styles. Very interestingly, no member of the silent generation was ever elected president. We went straight from a bunch of consecutive GI generation presidents, from Kennedy through George H.W. Bush, straight from there to a succession of baby boomers. Every president from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump has been a boomer. So it'll be interesting to see if a Gen Xer ever gets elected president or whether we'll jump right from elderly boomers to young adult millennials once the millennials are old enough to be presidents. There are a lot of historically significant examples of silent generation people, even though they've elected no presidents. So just a few would include Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Robert Kennedy, Bernie Sanders, Colin Powell, George Carlin, Ron Paul. Gloria Steinem, Morgan Freeman, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry, Marilyn Monroe, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Willie Nelson, Elvis Presley, Noam Chomsky, Bob Dylan, and Ralph Nader, to name a few. Very diverse group, obviously a lot of people who were prominent in creative fields, especially music and acting and filmmaking. Then, of course, you have following them the Baby Boomers, or the Boomers for short, this is a profit archetype generation, which Strauss and Howe date to being born between 1943 and 1960. This generation grew up after the crises of the Depression and World War II were dealt with and over, and they grew up in the affluence and the optimism of the post-war high. Overall, they were the most well-taken-care-of and arguably overindulged generation of children in American history, and had a lot more opportunity as children and young adults than any generation before or since. All you got to do is look at, like, what was it like to get through college financially for a baby boomer versus what it's like now? Of course, the one fly in the ointment for them was when they got to be of military age, and then suddenly the government wanted to draft them for Vietnam, which obviously is one of the things that fed the counterculture, although Strauss and Howe, I think, would argue that even without the Vietnam War, you would have had some kind of an awakening, some kind of a, a countercultural movement. Strauss and Howe say that since the boomers grew up with the outer world, the external world, largely squared away and taken care of, they could kind of take that for granted and begin focusing more on the inner world. And this leads to the consciousness revolution of the 60s and 70s. 
Strauss and Howe, who, by the way, are both boomers, they characterize the boomers as tending to be self-absorbed and self-righteous, and they describe the ascension of their values to dominate America during the unraveling era as follows, quote, Today's boomer-style values politics had its roots in the awakening. The temperament of the boomer-dominated Congress has a recognizable link to the 1960s kids in jeans with bullhorns. What the New York Times calls the new churlishness echoes what once occurred on radicalized awakening-era campuses. Now as before, the advantage goes to whomever yells the loudest and has the best conversation enders. Everything gets hyperbolized. An offensive touching becomes an assault, which becomes rape, which becomes murder, which becomes genocide. In boomer battles over symbols, polarization is easy, compromise hard. And later on they write, quote, As boomers move more deeply into midlife, their collective mindset will grow more judgmental, snobbish, and severe. End quote. Following the boomers, you have the generation that Strauss and Howe mostly refer to as 13ers. And I think if I recall correctly, it's because it's the 13th generation since the founding of the United States. But this generation is more commonly called Generation X or Gen X, and I'll probably use that terminology more frequently than I'll use 13ers in my discussion of this. But these are, of course, the nomad archetype. And Strauss and Howe, other people date all these generations slightly differently. But Strauss and Howe for Gen X, they date it 61 to 1981. So this generation was born and raised during a time in which society, including their boomer parents, was lavishing less attention and resources on children than on adults. So Gen Xers are growing up at a time when adults were increasingly self-centered and when things like divorce and crime rates were reaching record highs in American history. And as a result, latchkey kids was a common phenomenon for members of this generation. People who were just kind of on their own after school without supervision. And of course, this is a double-edged sword, you know, can be good, can be bad. I think kids need a certain amount of independence and so on. On the other hand, obviously, there is such a thing as neglect as well. There's ideally there's some sort of a place in between the helicopter parent and the just completely neglect absentee parent. But anyway, at the same time as the Gen Xers were growing up neglected and underprotected in many cases, society itself was often portraying youths in a negative light and then kind of reinforcing this trend of neglecting and underprotecting children. So, for example, think of the number of horror movies that came out in the late 70s and early 80s that deal with some form or another of an evil child. So Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Omen, Halloween, to name just a few. Perhaps not coincidentally, this era was also the high tide for abortion rates in America as well. Members of Gen X are often characterized or stereotyped even as being independent, resourceful, pragmatic, skeptical, and also cynical perhaps even pessimistic. Strauss and Howe, again in The Fourth Turning, which was written in the mid-90s, write of Gen Xers' political attitudes, quote, Political surveys show 13ers to be somewhat more conservative, considerably less liberal, and far more independent than older generations are today or were at like age. Never knowing anything except institutional decline, 13ers are deeply skeptical about grand policy visions they assume will somehow only add to America's fiscal debt and social chaos. 
government is viewed by many 13ers as a morass that is far too complex, far too tied to special interests, and far too enmeshed in ideology to get simple things done. For many, non-voting has become an acceptable social choice. More than three thirteeners in four do not trust government to look after their basic interests. As they see it, other people get benefits while they pay the bills. More thirteeners believe in UFOs than in Social Security lasting until they retire. End quote. I want to talk a little bit more about thirteeners or Gen X than I did about the other generations that I've been listing off here. And it's for selfish reasons, in part, and it's also in part because I think it'll speak to a lot more of you than any other generation to talk about Gen X. In reading this book, I was always the most interested in what they had to say about the nomad archetype generations than others, because that's what I am. I was born in 1981, so according to Strauss and Howe, I'm at the very end of the 13th generation, so I'm just barely Gen X. Now, I've heard other writers on generations refer to people who are born on the edges of one generation, kind of on the border between one generation and the next, as being cuspers. They're born on the cusp of one generation and the next. Although I don't recall Strauss and Howe ever using that term in this book. So I might be considered a cusper. I'm on the border of Gen X and Gen Y, or the millennials. But that said, I do and kind of always have, even before I even realized what these things meant, identified much more in almost every way with Gen X than with the millennials, at least in terms of the stereotype of what Gen X is. And part of it, I think, is just my inherent individual attitude about things. But I think there's maybe more to it than that in terms of the origin of this. And it's my own pet theory I've been thinking about since I've been reading this book and thinking more about generations, that cuspers like me, who are on the border of generations, are maybe more likely to identify with the prior generation that they're on the border of, if, like me, they had older siblings that were situated a little bit more kind of in the midst of the prior generation. So I had older siblings born in the 70s. And as a result of that, I think because I had siblings a little bit older than me, that it meant that I kind of imbibed more Gen X culture and attitudes and so on than I would have been if I had been an only child or if I had been the eldest. So I think if I'd been an only child or been the oldest among siblings with a whole bunch of younger siblings that were more kind of right in the middle of the millennial generation, I might identify more with the millennials because I wouldn't have had those older siblings kind of bringing in Generation X, pop culture and attitudes and so on. Although then again, maybe not, who the hell knows. But that's just my pet theory. I've always kind of identified, even before I knew what the hell Generation X meant, I always identified a little bit more with the people slightly older than me than with the people slightly younger than me, which is kind of interesting. Now, talking more about nomads and about Gen X is not just selfish. I think a lot of this show's audience are probably Gen Xers as well, and that there's probably more Gen Xers in the audience of this show than any other single generation. I'm sure there's a fair number of boomers and millennials as well, but I, if I had to guess, I would guess it's people who are Gen X, or at the very least, kind of very early millennials who maybe don't quite identify with the millennials that strongly. So I just want to share with you a few other quotes, a few other passages from Strauss and Howe talking about Gen X in particular and nomad generations in general. 
So here's Strauss and Howe on nomad generation people. Quote, Underprotected as children, they become overprotective parents. Their principal endowments are in the domains of liberty, survival, and honor. They have been cunning, hard-to-fool realists, taciturn warriors who prefer to meet problems and adversaries one-on-one, end quote. Another one, quote, Nomad generations have the misfortune to be children in an era when adults are persuading each other to shed social discipline and rediscover their deeper selves. Struggling to cope with the harsh underside of cultural upheaval, nomad children acquire a cynicism about moral crusades and a fatalism about weak adults apparently unable to make simple things work. They are expected to grow up fast and learn to be independent, resourceful, and competitive at an early age. As they do, however, these qualities earn their fledgling generation a negative reputation among adults. By the end of the awakening, as adults survey the damage done to the child's world, young nomads become metaphors of society's newfound pessimism about the future. End quote. And I found it particularly interesting in this book, in the fourth turning, when they talked about the fictional examples of this archetype and how it's different from the two archetypes that are most often depicted as the protagonists in fiction. And the two archetypes most often depicted as the protagonists in a fictional story or in a myth or whatever are the hero and the prophet. And it's much less common to have the artist-type generation or the nomad-type generation portrayed as the main protagonist of a story or myth. They'll be in there, but usually as kind of secondary characters or sidekicks or what have you. So in contrast to the much more common myths and fiction centering around heroes and prophets, Strauss and Howe write that, quote, Myths evoking the nomad and artist are less grand and more personal. Their tales speak more to human relations than to the rise and fall of dynasties and religions. Nomads are abandoned and alienated children who later, as adults, strive to slow down, simplify, and brace their social environment. Artists are sheltered and sensitive children who, later as adults, strive to speed up, complicate, and adorn their social environment. Nomads are raised to manage alone and are burdened with low expectations. Artists are raised to cooperate with others and are burdened with high expectations. End quote. By the way, if Strauss and Howe's archetypes hold true, then my own children are of an artist archetype generation, which is very interesting. Anyway, back to Strauss and Howe talking a little bit more about nomads in fiction and mythology. Quote, when a myth shows the nomad archetype in midlife, the story tells of an aging adventurer, savvy but going it alone. If older generations are present, they represent an older prophet and a younger hero never the other way around. The nomad is neither as dutiful or naive as the younger hero, nor as transcendentally wise or wicked as the older prophet. In the Star Wars trilogy, Han Solo looks down the age ladder and sees the good Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, and looks up and sees the wise Obi-Wan Kenobi and the evil Darth Vader. These are times of crisis during which the nomad does the dirty work with little expectation of public praise or reward, end quote. And it's interesting how many Generation Xers really more than anyone else identified with Han Solo in the Star Wars films, the original Star Wars films. 
And another science fictional hero of mine, Malcolm Reynolds of Firefly and Serenity, also seems to be of a nomad archetype. By the way, I've got a great t-shirt that looks like a campaign shirt, a political campaign shirt, and it's got a stylized picture of Han Solo and Malcolm Reynolds on it with the slogan, Vote Smuggler, Always Shoot First. Solo Reynolds, something like that. So I'll put a link in the show notes. If I can find the shirt on Amazon, I'll put a link as one of my affiliate links for this show's show notes. But anyway, as I read this book, I was particularly interested in the nomad archetype, and I thought I'd share a little bit more on that with you. Then you've got the millennial generation, which Strauss and Howe say is going to be of a hero archetype and was born in their dates between 82 and 2004. Strauss and Howe say that this generation was born at a time when adults and institutions were starting to reverse the trends of the awakening era and starting to devote more resources and attention back to the young. Now, one dark element of this that they don't predict in the fourth turning, and I don't know if they've addressed in later years, is the trend of millennial youngsters being highly over-medicated, especially on psychotropic sorts of drugs and things like that. So... That was something in their discussions of the millennial generation that they didn't predict back in the 90s, and that I wonder how they would explain that, and if that maybe makes this supposed hero generation maybe a little bit more flawed, dangerous, maybe not heroes, I don't know. I don't agree with everything that Strauss and Howe have to say about the millennial generation and the fourth turning, although to be fair, the book was written two decades ago, and... It's a mixed bag, in my opinion, of what they have to say about this generation who were just little tiny kids at the time they were writing. This is the generation, remember, that is often portrayed by older people, especially Gen Xers, as being delicate snowflakes and teacups and so on. And so it's interesting to wonder, are they somehow going to rise to some crisis and be the heroes that Strauss and Howe think they'll be, or will they be incapable of playing the role that events might foist in front of them. That said, some of the things Strauss and Howe say about the millennials in the fourth turning are things that they really sort of hit the nail on the head as far as what has come to pass. So, for example, in the book, Strauss and Howe write that, quote, Millennials will grow up to be sociable and team-oriented adolescents, but will strike adults as somewhat bland, conformist, and dependent on others to reach judgments, end quote. And I have to say, that's been my perception of millennials in my classes, with individual exceptions, of course, which there always are. But even the ones that are quite bright often will have a hard time really thinking independently. And one of the things I try to do in my courses is to basically kind of give them some some shock treatment to knock them off balance and make them really kind of question things. And at least from what I hear of students giving me feedback later, it seems to really do the job, at least for a lot of them. But in 11 years of teaching college history, the vast majority of the students who've come through my classes are millennials. So I think I have a feel for this generation that's, you know, based on a pretty large sample size. Although obviously it's limited in terms of geography and there's certain social class limitations, etc. But anyway, they totally get wrong some of their predictions about the millennials and what's going to happen around them. So, for example, they make predictions such as, quote, Youth poverty will fuel a new class politics. Colleges will be pressured into holding the line on tuition and student indebtedness, faculties into putting teaching ahead of research, employers into creating apprenticeships, older workers into making room for the young, end quote. And I don't see much, if any, of that happening. 
In fact, that's a case where I do see the trend continuing of younger people getting stiffed while older generations keep getting more and more benefits. I don't see that reversing so far. Maybe it's still in the future. I don't know. And then following the millennials is the generation that people are still not quite sure what it'll ultimately be called. And out of laziness is usually called Generation Z, has a reference to Generation X, and then the millennials sometimes also being called Gen Y. Generation Z, which Strauss and Howe estimate will be approximately those born from 2005 to 2025. And in the fourth turning, they don't say too much about this, make too many predictions about them, other than to say they will be the next artist archetype generation sheltered as youngsters during a crisis era. So anyway, we've talked about the different phases of life. We've talked about the different turnings, the different generational archetypes, and given a bird's eye view of some of the recent examples of all these. Now, obviously, if you've been paying attention, you've noticed I've said that Strauss and Howe in the book, The Fourth Turning, date that we basically right now as I'm speaking, which is, you know, 20 years after The Fourth Turning was published, are or should be in the midst of a new fourth turning, a new crisis era. In the fourth turning, again, written back in the mid-90s, Strauss and Howe wrote, quote, The next crisis era will most likely extend roughly from the middle 00s to the middle 2020s. Its climax is not likely to occur before 2005 or later than 2025, end quote. Now, when it comes to understanding and thinking about a fourth turning, Strauss and Howe actually have a kind of complex, nuanced view of a crisis era, pointing out both the good and the bad, both the positives and the negatives, the good sides, the dark sides, from their perspective. And while occasionally they seem to be waxing a little bit too nostalgic about some previous crisis eras, they also periodically do point out the downsides. So, for example, they write of the previous fourth turning crisis, which, again, centers around World War II, quote, That era established a powerful new civic order, replete with new public institutions, economic arrangements, political alliances, and global treaties. That era also produced a grim acceptance of destruction as a necessary concomitant to human progress. While this beloved spirit of America resonates with warm reminiscence from a distance of half a century, it was also a time of blunt, cruel, even lethal forms of social change. End quote. During a crisis era, people tend to be more willing than usual to defer to authority, even to want authoritarianism. Conflicts, including both foreign wars as well as kind of revolutionary and civil wars, are more likely during a fourth turning, and they tend to be fought in a more total war fashion than conflicts that happen during other turnings. Remember, according to Strauss and Howe's theory, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and World War II were the last three fourth turning or crisis eras for American history. Strauss and Howe say that the position of the four different generational archetypes in terms of where they're at in phase of life in a fourth turning is what will make it into a crisis era. Now, they talk about events as catalysts that bring on a fourth turning. And the thing is that stunning events happen fairly regularly, though, of course, unpredictably throughout history. But they say that what makes some of these events into catalysts of a fourth turning, but not others, is where the four archetype generations are in terms of their stages of life. 
In other words, what differentiates a catalyst that inaugurates a fourth turning from simply a run-of-the-mill historical shock event in a first, second, or third turning is not the event itself so much as how society is likely to react to it. And how society is likely to react to it depends on the different generational archetypes and where they are. So Strauss and House summarize the generation's positions in a crisis era as follows, quote, The indulged prophet children of highs, born in the aftermath of one crisis, foment the next crisis upon entering elderhood. The abandoned nomad children of awakenings become the pragmatic midlife managers of crisis. The protected hero children of unravelings provide the powerful young adult soldiers of crisis. The suffocated children of crises come of age afterward as artists' youths. End quote. Now, the real key to the fourth turning crisis era is the elderly prophet generation, which, again, at present, our elderly prophets are the aging baby boomers. Their self-righteous streak tends to make them less willing to compromise and more willing to bring on the next crisis. Previous generations, upon reaching elderhood, tended to be more cautious because they'd lived at least part of their life during the previous crisis. So this is why, for example, for all of their flaws, Lost Generation and GI Generation presidents didn't ultimately end up starting World War III with the Soviets, despite all those years of tensions and crises in the early part of the Cold War. Because they had lived through World War II, they ultimately stepped back from turning on World War III, even though they did do some smaller wars and some nasty things. By contrast, I don't know about you, but to me, I can definitely imagine a Donald Trump or a Hillary Clinton or some other self-righteous baby boomer generation president being willing to pull the trigger for total war. And I can imagine someone of that generation doing it much more easily than I could imagine a Dwight Eisenhower or a John Kennedy or even a more hawkish member of the older generations like a Nixon or a Reagan doing so. Now, looking ahead from their vantage point in the 1990s, in the fourth turning, Strauss and Howe describe some possible catalysts that might inaugurate a fourth turning era, things from foreign conflict to civil unrest, to terrorism, to fiscal and financial collapse, and even epidemic disease or, you know, some combination of these things that might ignite a crisis era. In the crisis, Strauss and Howe say that there will be a political realignment and that whichever faction is able to capitalize on it best will become the new dominating party and construct the new regime. It'll be somewhat authoritarian, most likely, but the bulk of the population will eagerly support it because of the crisis atmosphere and that this regime will get through the crisis and create the new institutional framework for what comes next. Now, while their description of prior fourth turnings in American history, ultimately leading towards highs, might indicate that they'd be optimistic about the ultimate outcome of this current fourth turning, Strauss and Howe are actually a little bit more guarded, and they argue it can sort of go either way. So they write, quote, If there is war, it is likely to culminate in total war, fought until the losing side has been rendered nil, its will broken, territory taken, and leaders captured. And if there is total war, it is more likely that the most destructive weapons available will be deployed. With or without war, American society will be transformed into something different. The emergent society may be something better, a nation that sustains its framers' visions with a new robust pride, 
or it may be something unspeakably worse. The fourth turning will be a time of glory or ruin. End quote. Later on, they add, quote, Obviously, things could go horribly wrong. The possibilities ranging from a nuclear exchange to incurable plagues, from terrorist anarchy to high-tech dictatorship. End quote. Elsewhere in this book, they even refer to the possibility of a new Dark Ages, which they write it plural like I just said it, which, hey, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And I swear I had not read this book when I added Renaissance Man for the New Dark Age to my long list of self-bestowed titles. But while they do point out it could go very wrong, they also argue that getting through the next fourth turning could establish a new high, a new golden age, etc. I have to say, some of the specific predictions that they make about the different generations' sort of changes in behavior and attitudes during the crisis are hard for me to take, given where we're at right now. For example, they predict that as the baby boomers become more elderly, as they get older, they will ultimately embrace being authentically old, and will become philosophical and almost sage-like, and will ultimately willingly accept big cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and other programs for the elderly that they'll willingly step aside so that the government can shift back to devoting more resources to the young at the expense of the elderly, and they'll do this for the first time since the 50s. Strauss and Howe write, quote, where their youthful ethos hinged on self-indulgent, their elder ethos will hinge on self-denial. End quote. Yeah, I'm not seeing that from the baby boomers yet, and I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for it. One prediction they make about boomer behavior that I think is happening and will continue possibly right up into World War III is that the boomers in their elder years of leadership where boomer generation members of the political elite are running the government, that they will be very hawkish on foreign policy. Strauss and Howe write, quote, In foreign matters, they will narrowly define the acceptable behavior of other nations and broadly define the appropriate use of American arms. The same boomers who in youth chanted, hell no, we won't go, will emerge as America's most martial elder generation in living memory. Whatever the elements of crisis, old boomer leaders will up the moral ante beyond the point of possible retreat or compromise. They will risk enormous pain and consequence to command youth to fight and die in ways they themselves never would have tolerated in their own youth. End quote. And I think that's right on the money. The boomers of the political elite seem quite reckless in their willingness to risk World War III over some really trifling shit. Now, the second most important group in terms of bringing about and navigating the fourth turning are going to be the millennials who, again, Strauss and Howe say are the next rising hero archetype generation. And Strauss and Howe make an interesting comparison of millennials to a show many of them watched while they were growing up, namely the Power Rangers. So Strauss and Howe write, quote, Power Rangers are wholesome kid soldiers in bright primary color uniforms no relation to the junk-fed mutant turtles of the 13er child era, Power Rangers have provided the unraveling's leading toy role models for children. When summoned, these ordinary youths transform themselves into thunderbolting evil fighters. Cheerful, confident, and energetic, Power Rangers are nurtured to succeed in the face of great odds. Whatever they do, from displaying martial arts to piloting high-tech weaponry, they do as a choreographed group. Their very motto, the power of teamwork overcomes all, speaks of strength in cooperation, 
energy in conformity, virtue in duty. Their missions are not chosen by themselves, but by an incorporeal elder in whose vision and wisdom they have total trust. Come the fourth turning, coming-of-age millennials will have a lot in common with these action toys. End quote. And I thought that was a fascinating insight. And so basically, what Strauss and Howe say is that when a fourth turning comes along, one particular member of the elderly prophet generation will ultimately rise as the leader around which much of the young hero generation rallies, and he sort of leads them through. So, for example, in prior fourth turnings, he would say that FDR was the leader of the missionary generation around whom the GI generation ultimately rallied, first as foot soldiers of the New Deal and then as the foot soldiers of World War II that Lincoln served the function for the Civil War as well of this leader from a prophet generation. And Strauss and Howe discuss this leader of the prophet generation who will rise in elderhood to get through the crisis, to lead through the crisis, as the Gray Champion, which is a reference to a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, where there's this crisis going on in colonial Massachusetts, and an elderly member of kind of the founding generation shows up out of nowhere and kind of through the power of his his presence and personality, persuades the people to take a stand for their liberties and that sort of thing. And the idea is the gray champion. And people who follow Strauss and Howe's work, who are fans of it, they're looking for the next gray champion. So, for example, is it Donald Trump? Well, I don't think it's Trump simply because his appeal to millennials seems to be very limited at best. My understanding is, and I'm not intimately familiar with all the data, but my understanding is, Trump probably appealed a lot more to older Americans than to younger. So I don't think it's Trump. I think it could have been Obama if he had been as much of a promoter of change as he portrayed himself as. But ultimately, he ended up being just kind of ho-hum. So I don't know. If there is another great champion, I don't think we know who he is yet. And by the way, don't think that I at least see the idea of a great champion as a good thing. To put it mildly, I'm not a big fan of either FDR or Abraham Lincoln. Overall, I do think that Strauss and Howe go a little bit too far in predicting how much they think the millennial generation are going to turn kind of Ned Flandersy as young adults, that they're going to all of a sudden bring about this like super duper clean cut square pop culture, very wholesome, and they're going to revert to traditional gender norms and that sort of thing. I don't see that happening. Instead, I see a lot of at least the more affluent members of the millennial generation being the foot soldiers of the SJW movement and things like that. And interesting to think of how often are they following the orders in some way or another of a boomer college professor or something like that. Interesting to think about. Some of the other predictions that Strauss and Howe make about uh, millennials' Political activities as young adults seem to be pretty plausible to me based on what we've seen so far of them as young adults. They write, quote, This youthful hunger for social discipline and centralized authority could lead millennial youth brigades to lend mass to dangerous demagogues. Unraveling-era adults who are today chilled by school uniforms will be truly frightened by the millennials' crisis-era collectivism. End quote. And that, to me, seems much more plausible, at least from what I see so far of the way things are going. Again, a prediction they make that I don't quite get on with is they predict that the millennials will begin reestablishing greater separation in terms of gender roles. Quote, 
They will vex feminists by accepting a new mystique between the sexes, end quote. Sorry, not seeing that one so far. But then they also make a prediction shortly after that that I think will come tragically true, quote, They, meaning the millennials, will vex free marketeers with their demands for trade barriers, government regulation, labor standards, and public works, end quote. Yeah, I can see that coming. Strauss and Howe also predict that the millennials will, given leaders that appeal to them properly, accept compulsory youth service, both in civilian and potentially in military roles. Like I said before, Strauss and Howe predict that millennials will, during the next crisis, fixate upon an aging boomer generation leader who will really inspire them and that they'll follow that person through the crisis as the GI generation followed and supported FDR in the 30s and 40s. Now, again, my conclusion is that Trump, despite being a boomer, is not that person. Because, again, as far as I can tell, millennials are not generally big Trump supporters. Strauss and Howe make some suggestions on how individuals and the country as a whole might potentially prepare for the fourth turning, which, remember, was still in the future when they were writing this. When it comes to things the country should be doing, according to them, I think few or none of them actually were done. And when it comes to suggestions for individuals, I don't think the majority of Americans have been doing them. For example, they urge individuals to save money and stop overconsuming, and they urge the nation to balance the federal budget and aim for budget surpluses as soon as possible to prepare for the crisis. Which I've just got to say, that's fucking hilarious, because since the mid-90s, both the people and the government have mostly done the exact opposite of what Strauss and Howe suggested. They then make some more suggestions specifically about what the generations that are still in place as of the 90s when they wrote this, what those generations should do to kind of ease what's going to happen with the crisis. They say that in their last days, the last members of the GI generation need to begin cutting back all the subsidies that the elderly receive in order to shift more resources to the young millennials. And they write, quote, If GIs fail at this script, the America they want saved will be weakened. Lacking resources and civic nurture, millennial children might not grow up with enough of that legendary right stuff to triumph in the fourth turning, end quote. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the GIs completely failed at this, and they kept all the transfer programs to the elderly not only in place, but ever increasing. Whether or not spending more government money on the young would have made the young better is to me, and I'm sure to most of you listening, quite a questionable proposition. But I think that regardless of the reasons, and we could probably list a ton of them, while I see a similar amount of conformism and submissiveness to authority in the millennials as in the GI generation, I really just don't see any of the toughness of the GI generation in the millennials. Not at all. I mean, think about it this way. Could you really picture many of today's 18, 19, 20-year-olds storming the beaches of Normandy? Now, I'm sure there are plenty of individuals of the millennial generation who are plenty tough and brave enough to do something like that, but I just don't see it as a common quality among many of them. Maybe my perception is biased, I don't know, but I just have a hard time accepting that as something we're likely to see from this uh, millennial generation. In making suggestions for boomers on how to navigate the coming fourth turning, Strauss and Howe write, quote, if boomers make a wrong choice, history will be unforgiving. 
The continued maturation of boomers is vital for the crisis to end in triumph. Side note, I think we're fucked. Back to Strauss and Howe. These one-time worshippers of youth must relinquish it entirely before they can demand from the millennials the civic virtue they themselves did not display during the awakening. When the crisis hits, boomers will need to defuse the culture wars at once. Side note, if we take the 2008 financial meltdown as the catalyst for this crisis era, then they failed at this one. The boomers, and almost everyone else for that matter, have, far as I can tell, doubled down on the culture wars since 2008. Anyway, back to Strauss and Howe. Boomers must also display a forbearance others have never associated with them. By nature, they will always tend towards self-indulgence in their personal lives, but if they allow this to overflow into public life and demand generous public benefits, they will bankrupt their children financially, themselves, morally. Side note, take a look at the U.S. debt clock sometimes. Back to Strauss and Howe. Worse, if boomers become pointlessly argumentative and let their values back them into a corner, their current talk show hyperbole about annihilating enemies could translate into orders to use real doomsday machines. This generation must squarely face the threat its unyielding moralism could pose to its own children, to the nation, indeed to the entire world, end quote. And again, I think it's fair to say, so far it's looking like we may be fucked. Though the fourth turning is mostly about the United States, Strauss and Howe argue that the generational model has relevance to any society. And furthermore to that, they indicate that because of having certain crises, such as the Great Depression and World War II, in common with the United States, other countries may be on the same generational cycle as the U.S., but at least in this book, they don't address the international dimensions of this theory too much, other than going back in time to kind of early modern English history. However, I will point out that it's interesting to note how often the U.S. and some of its closer allies, such as Canada and the U.K. and some of the other countries of Western Europe, have gone through comparable political and or cultural trends at roughly the same time. So, for example, there was kind of a 60s counterculture associated with protests and activism, etc. in the 60s and 70s in many of these countries, or in the 80s, right? Margaret Thatcher's time as Prime Minister of the UK overlapped with Reagan's presidency, and you can see a few other kind of right-wing conservative leaders being elected to some other countries in Western Europe and Canada, etc., during that time as well. So it's just interesting how often kind of analogous trends seem to happen in different places at once. But looking at the fourth turning in Strauss and Howe's theories overall, I'm going to say some positive things and also have some criticisms. On the positive side... This book and this theory, it presents a lens or a paradigm through which one can look at history that I think is rare to find amongst modern historians. Though, as we've mentioned, it wasn't that rare amongst ancient historians. With that lens of seeing things through the prism of generations, you see certain patterns in relationships that you otherwise might not see. And you see certain rhythms for example, between war and peace, between higher religiosity versus lower religiosity, between higher social cohesion versus lower social cohesion, etc. Some of these rhythms, which you might otherwise have noticed, you start to understand them better and maybe have a theory to potentially explain them. The theory also seems to have a lot of relevance to explaining political shifts. 
So, for example, Strauss and Howe argue that realignments of the political party system, such as those shifts in party system that I've talked about in a couple of previous episodes, those massive changes in American politics usually coincide with either an awakening or a crisis. Among the other things this model appears to account for is how often it is that young people rebel against their parents, but get along surprisingly well with their grandparents' generation, which is kind of interesting. I'll also say, on the plus side, that overall, this book is very well written, it's very readable, the literary quality is high, it really sucked me right in. While not all the predictions they made 20 years ago in this book, The Fourth Turning, seem to be coming to pass, enough of them do seem to be on the horizon that I think there's definitely something to their analysis. I think if you read this book and think about things, you'll come up with your own anecdotal evidence from your own personal interactions with people from different generations than you. And you'll think of enough things that you'll conclude, as I did, that there is something to this concept of thinking in terms of generations. You'll think about an interaction you had with a baby boomer or a millennial or whatever, you know, is different from you. And you'll think, oh, now I kind of understand a little bit better why myself and this person simply were not speaking the same language about something. That said, I think you'll also, like me, be able to think of plenty of individuals you know personally who do not fit in with this supposed archetype of their generation, which is something even Strauss and Howe in passing kind of admit, like, yeah, okay, not everybody fits. Also, I'll say on the positive side of the book, for the most part, Strauss and Howe are quite balanced in their take on things. I mean, the book overall seems to have a fairly standard kind of centrist political paradigm, which obviously I don't share, but I appreciate that they're trying to be as kind of even-handed in this as possible. They have this view that, again, is almost a little bit like Taoist in their take, where they don't have a preference for left and right or for any of the particular turnings or generational archetypes being better or worse than the other, that each of these things sort of has a function to play as the seasons of nature do. Although I've heard that elsewhere, they're particularly hard on the boomer generation, which is their own generation, which is kind of interesting. Now, a few of my criticisms of this book and these theories, a lot of my criticisms of their theory come down to one variation or another of this, which is you always have a big problem when you're dealing with huge aggregate categories. Anytime you deal with massive amounts of people, whether it's entire nations or entire races or entire socioeconomic classes, or in this case, entire generations, there are limits to how much you can definitively say about any category. Individuals obviously vary a ton within any category. There are plenty of individual members of Generation X that have more in common in terms of their personality and how they approach things with, for example, the GI generation than they do with other members of their own generation. So I think it's important to keep in mind the limitations of this whole thing. So yeah, you can say there are certain tendencies and trends and, you know, identifiable majority ways of things, but at the end of the day, you got to be careful not to sort of become prisoner of a paradigm that at least I would hope you would use as a way to kind of spot new things. Now, some critics I think of this book have said, and I would agree with them, that a lot of the analysis of Strauss and Howe of generational characteristics seems to be most based on and most accurate in regard to kind of upper middle and upper class Americans. 
a lot of what they have to say about different generations seems problematic and perhaps inaccurate if you apply it to lower class people and or to at least some ethnic minority populations. So, for example, Strauss and Howe talk a lot about millennials being raised with more protection and a more positive environment, etc., than Gen X, and that millennials will therefore also be less prone to crime and to other social problems as young people. And while perhaps this is true of upper middle class white people and other ethnic groups that you know tend to be socioeconomically better off, I doubt that one would find such a significant improvement in things like child-rearing practices and childhood social problems amongst poorer people. So I would guess, for example, whether you were looking at poor white people in places like Appalachia and the Rust Belt, or poor blacks and Latinos in some of the tougher inner cities of America, you wouldn't see this identifiable trend of, oh, starting sometime in the early to mid-80s, these children are being treated way better. And look at this, they're experiencing less crime and drugs and social problems and whatever. I really am skeptical that that's across the board. Even taking it for granted that they may be correct about upper and upper middle class people, which, you know, you'd have to do the empirical research to check that out anyway. But even if you gave them that for the sake of argument, I'm skeptical at least that it would apply to less well-off populations. In fact, I would not be terribly surprised to find the opposite trend. In other words, that for many of these groups of poor people, including poor minorities as well as poor whites, that for many of them, things had gotten worse for youngsters in the transition from Gen X to the millennials. That for a lot of these populations, it might have been better to have been a kid in the 70s than to have been a kid in the 90s. That it simply depends on who you are and where you are. I think at times you could also criticize Strauss and Howe for having developed this theory and outlined it engaging in more than a little bit of reification or reifying. Now, if you don't know, reification is basically when you have this abstract concept and you start to treat it as if it's a real tangible thing. So there's also a related fallacy to this, which is the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Often pointing out this problem is summarized with the saying, the map is not the territory. You don't want to be mistaking the map for the actual territory that the map is supposed to represent. So I think at times you could argue that Strauss and Howe do get so consumed with their model and their categories and so on that they're doing some reification. In fact, at one, if not several points in the book, they explicitly say things along the lines of generations have the characteristics of a person or something like that. And unfortunately, I left the exact quotes on this out of my notes, so I, I don't have it at my fingertips. But it, I found that a little bit problematic. And in other times, perhaps not so blatantly, you could accuse them also of being involved in reification. Another criticism is even though, as I said a few minutes ago, the book overall was well-written and sucked me in, I also did think at times it was a little bit too repetitive, that there was a little bit too much beating of dead horses. And also, I thought, this is just my opinion, maybe other people will appreciate this, but I thought there were too many charts in the book. Now, I think the charts served a purpose, and I think some of them definitely needed to be in there, but at times it got a little bit tedious and repetitive, at least I thought. I think that Strauss and how a social historian, which I'm really not, might be able to take apart more of their specific claims with empirical evidence. So just one example of something, a kind of characterization they made that I thought might possibly be disproven by empirical data 
is some of the historical things they say about things like crime and social strife in the 1930s and 40s. Argument that, for example, during World War II, society really came together and was cohesive. And a lot of that actually be myth-making and nostalgia rather than empirical facts. In fact, there's some data to indicate that crime, social strife, child abuse, all these sorts of things, other, other social problems all went up during World War II, not down. And while it's true that a lot of measures of crime went down in the 30s as compared to the 20s, one could argue that that has more to do with the repeal of prohibition in the early 30s than with generational constellations changing. Although I suppose Strauss and Howe might make the counter argument that, well, the reason prohibition went away when it did was because of the changing generational constellations at the time, which, you know, is a reasonable counter argument from their perspective. Overall, I think that looking at history through the paradigm of generations, it definitely illuminates some things that you might otherwise miss. So I think it's definitely a useful tool to have in your historical analysis toolbox. And for that, I think Strauss and Howe ought to be applauded. However, I also feel the same way about the generational paradigm as I do about the current kind of reigning iron triangle of historical analysis in conventional academia, which is, of course, race, class, and gender. I think that there are important things to have in your toolbox because they can illuminate things you might otherwise miss if you didn't have them in your toolbox of analysis. But I think any of these tools, any of these prisms, these lenses, if they completely take over your view, and if they're the only lens through which you look at things and try to analyze history, any one of these paradigms or other potential ones we might imagine could potentially obscure as much or perhaps even more than it will illuminate. This book and these theories have been very influential. Again, I've heard of it for a long time before I finally sat down and read it. And lots of people have been influenced, perhaps most notoriously at the moment, is Steve Bannon, of all people, is supposedly quite taken with this theory. So much so that in 2010, he wrote and directed a documentary entitled Generation Zero, which is basically taking Strauss and Howe's theory and giving it a very overt, rightward sort of a bent. The movie's available on YouTube at the moment. I'm not sure for how much longer, just because it's YouTube. For all I know, it'll be up there forever. But I'll link to it in the show notes, and you can watch it if you want. But just kind of a warning, a caveat even though they do have Neil Howe on this movie giving some comments during it, overall the film is a lot more overtly ideological than Strauss and Howe's work was. Now, I'm saying this not because I think there's anything inherently wrong with being ideological per se, so much as I don't want someone to just watch that film and not read Strauss and Howe's book and then think based on that they have an accurate understanding of Strauss and Howe's work and theories. You won't if all you've done is watch Generation Zero. In other words, from watching the film, what you'll have is an understanding of what Steve Bannon thinks about and took away from Strauss and Howe's work, which is different from what Strauss and Howe actually said. And I've got to say, the movie is, in my opinion, a rather awkward mixture of neocon and alt-right thought. And I, for one, was not nearly as impressed by Generation Zero as I was by the book that supposedly inspired it. But I'll link to it in the show notes in case anyone's interested. I think you'd be better off reading Strauss and Howe's book first before watching that movie. But, you know, do what you want to do, obviously. So wrapping up this rather long episode, 
I just want to say, if this stuff sounds at all like something you might be interested in, then I do highly recommend you read The Fourth Turning and maybe check out some of the other things by Strauss and Howe, or by how Solos and Strauss died. And as always, I'll link to some relevant stuff in the show notes. Like I said, I've always been intrigued by different concepts of time and history as being cyclical or circular, and I think Strauss and Howe have developed perhaps the most compelling modern-day version of cyclical history that I've come across, even if I don't think their theory explains everything or that it's without shortcomings and limitations. I have to say, looking at current events, I can't help but think they're right about this being a forthcoming era that we're standing in right now, though I wish they were wrong. But if Strauss and Howe are right, winter is coming. In fact, it's already begun, and it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better, if it does get better. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.